As of the day I'm recording this, in mid-October, there have been 15 named storms in the Atlantic Ocean in 2018. This is the fourth year in a row in which hurricane season started early in the Atlantic. The traditional date range for the season has been from June 1st until November 30th. That's just convention, not a set rule, but it's been a stable enough pair of brackets to be used consistently for the past several decades, with few exceptions. This season has also overshot the somewhat conservative estimate made by scientists at Colorado State University, which called for 11 named storms this year, though the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration forecast back in May that the 2018 season had a 75% chance of an above-normal or near-normal number of such storms. Normal is becoming a somewhat fraught term in the world of hurricanes and tropical storms, though, as normal implies that there are predictable norms. There are historical averages that tell us what we can probably expect when it comes to things like Atlantic Basin storms of a certain magnitude. But for the past decade or so, that seems to be less and less the case. Part of our awareness of these types of weather patterns, of course, has to do with our ever-present abundance of information, which very much includes potentially frightening and dangerous storm reporting, saturating our most popular media sources. But part of why we've heard so much more about these types of storms of late is that we just keep setting records. Any norms that we once had seem to be shifting, increasing the potential for new fringe events. Outliers that would have been just outside the range of likelihood or even possibility not too long ago, but which today have been brought into the range of potential and even certitude. As I'm recording this... Hurricane Michael has just finished devastating the Florida panhandle before sweeping its way across six states, killing more than a dozen people, wiping out entire towns, and dislocating tens of thousands of people. At the moment, about half a million people in the area are still without power, and flash flooding has demolished buildings and infrastructure and pushed medical supplies and services past their operational limit. North and South Carolina had an even worse time of things in some ways, catching Michael as a tropical storm rather than a Category 4 hurricane, which is what it was when it made landfall further south. But they were hit by this storm shortly after being struck by Hurricane Florence, which had weakened from a Category 4 to a Category 1 hurricane by the time it made landfall, but which just kind of sat over the Carolinas without moving for a long while, deluging them with almost 36 inches of water, which is over 900 millimeters of water in a very short time. And that's just the water. The hurricane itself was also quite powerful. I mean, a Category 1 hurricane is nothing to sneeze at. The Saffir-Simpson scale, which is what we often use to measure hurricanes and tropical storms in the Western Hemisphere, labels anything with a wind speed of up to 35 miles per hour, or 62 kilometers per hour, as a tropical depression. Anything with a wind speed of 39 to 73 miles per hour, or 63 to 118 kilometers per hour, is a tropical storm. And above that, we get into hurricane territory, with the categories 1 through 5 starting at 74, 96, 110, 130, and 157 miles per hour, respectively 
which means they start at 119, 154, 178, 209, and 252 kilometers per hour. If you come from a country that quite logically uses the metric system. So even a Category 1 hurricane has wind speeds of somewhere between 74 and 95 miles per hour, or 119 and 153 kilometers per hour, which is intense. But storms like Florence demonstrate why adopting other measurement systems alongside the Saphir Simpson may be a good idea, as these categories do not necessarily tell us what we need to know in terms of destructive potential. A Category 1 hurricane sounds super tame compared to the threes and fours that we hear about all the time these days. And that tame seemingness is important when it comes to communicating to folks in evacuation zones why they should take these storms seriously and get out before the dangerous stuff arrives, even if that dangerous thing is near the bottom of the storm scales that we've become accustomed to hearing about on the news. What I want to talk about today is a new climate report that was released very recently, what that report says, and the hubbub that it has been causing amongst people who have read it. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to start with today comes from the New York Times and it's entitled, Major Climate Report Describes a Strong Risk of Crisis as Early as 2040. I chose that piece to unspool rather than one of the many others that was written about this new climate report, but there was a vast spectrum of takes on this report, and many papers and websites actually published multiple pieces addressing the report from multiple angles after it was released on October 7th, 2018. And this was one of the more well-rounded pieces on it, I think. I'll link to the report itself in the show notes and the policymaker summary as well, which itself is 34 pages long. It's a substantial piece of work that was created by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a collection of scientists from around the world put together by the United Nations, intended to give world leaders the straight dope on what's happening when it comes to scientifically relevant topics. This report includes over 6,000 scientific references and was put together by 91 authors from 40 countries. They've been working on this thing since December of 2015, so for just under three years. It's notable that most of the data is not itself new. It's just been even more comprehensively assessed, discussed, mapped out, and summarized than before. In essence, they took all the research that's been happening all around the world and the outputs of that research and funneled it into this one piece, intending to get a big picture idea of what's happening, what could happen, and what can be done regarding climate change. The main takeaways from this piece seem to fall into three main categories. First, things are dire, very dire, scarily dire. The severe consequences that were predicted for some point in the distant future may actually happen quite soon. Second, there may be hope, but chasing that hope will not be easy or pleasant, and it may not even be pursued for a variety of reasons. And third, some of what we've been told and what we've been telling ourselves about how all this works, why it's happening, probably isn't true. Now let's start with that first point and work our way down. For a long while, the number that has been designated as the average temperature shift ceiling 
The point at which things really begin to go sideways here on Earth is 2 degrees Celsius, which is about 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. We've already nudged the atmosphere's temperature up by somewhere between 0.8 and 1.2 degrees Celsius since the Industrial Revolution. And when we talk about 2 degrees higher, we are talking about the average temperature compared to pre-industrial levels. Because the Industrial Revolution was the point when we really started to churn out greenhouse gases in meaningful quantities, which in turn changed the composition of the atmosphere and the way that the atmosphere behaved, especially in terms of what radiation it allowed through, absorbed, or reflected. The 2 degrees Celsius above industrial levels number is considered meaningful because that's roughly the point where things will really start to change here on Earth in dramatic and obvious and almost certainly very negative and harmful ways for us humans. It's not that any one of us humans would necessarily notice two degrees change one way or another as being strange in a particular area, because regional fluctuations will happen. The day-to-day -day temperature will vary. What's meaningful is that an average increase on that scale represents an average increase above natural cyclical changes. We are pushing things off kilter, and certain processes that are largely invisible to us, but which are vitally important to our ecosystems, our health, our survival, will be tampered with sufficiently to be not just ailing the way that they are today, but actually wiped out, dead or depleted, or shifting toward behaviors that we've never seen before which will in turn lead to dramatic changes that we absolutely will notice. Some that we can predict with relative accuracy, and some that we cannot predict, which in some ways is even scarier. One of the main points that this report makes is that, having gone back through their data to check a claim made by some of the newer research that's come in, they found that much of what the scientific world has been predicting for that 2 degrees Celsius level will actually come to pass at the 1.5 degree Celsius level, which is 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. So those scary spiraling events, which I'll get into more concretely in a moment, will happen sooner than we thought. We don't have the runway that we believed we had. And a lot of the plans that we have made, like the Paris Agreement, only map out solutions and steps for preventing that 2 degrees Celsius shift, not 1.5 degrees. And it's not even certain that we are willing or able to make the changes required to reach those now seemingly unsatisfactory set of goals. Which means things could get much worse much faster than we feared. And we have far less time to act if we want to curtail the worst of these consequences. Among the predictions made by this report, and again, these are scientists working from straight data, not trying to push any political or commercial agenda. All of these predictions are deleterious and perhaps even devastating impacts to, quote, health, livelihoods, food security, water supply, human security, and economic growth, end quote. There are some pretty solid pieces, some of which I will link to in the show notes, that discuss the specifics of what those impacts would mean, but I will outline some of them briefly here. Our bodies have evolved at a certain climate range. Modern humans are basically optimized for the climate zone that we have existed within for thousands of years, in part because of our biologies and in part because of the world that we've built the civilizational model that we landed on after the development and widespread embrace of agriculture. 
which is predicated on other life, on certain approaches to building societies, to certain way of harvesting, of producing food, to interacting with others, to managing scarce resources, and everything else that has allowed us to build the technologically sophisticated complex social systems that we take for granted. Increase the pressure on healthcare systems, for instance, by substantially upping the number of people suffering from skin cancers, from respiratory illnesses, from allergies, from heat strokes, from injuries resulting from extreme weather events, from diseases that are suddenly emerging in climates where they did not exist before. Yellow fever in the U.S. Midwest, in Canada, malaria in Europe, things like that. And those systems that we have worked so hard to build and which have worked decently well in most cases, flawed as they might be, they could collapse entirely. And that's true not just of the healthcare system, but of every single system. Everything that supports us and our modern way of living could collapse if pushed just a little in any direction. Our ability to make a living, to earn money, to earn money that has reliable value, that can predictably allow us to put roofs over our heads and food on our plates, all of that could be upended by these changes as well. The more our environment changes, the less predictable our harvests, the less stable our land value, the ability to invest in infrastructure for long periods of time, our ability to move to a place and decide that we're going to live there for more than a year or two, our ability to create assets that matter for more than just a few seasons, that could change, that could disappear. The relative reliability of our food and water sources could disappear creating a situation in which, despite our other infrastructure, certain parts of the world, certain countries, won't be able to keep water flowing and food arriving. Currently rich agricultural land could become barren, unusable, or unusable for its current purposes. Newly opened land in places like Siberia and northern Saskatchewan could flourish, leading to territorial disputes and land grabs, but also periods of feast and famine. As the good areas continue to shift, as the starving country next door makes moves to claim that newly rich territory just across the border, as starving people, independent of their governments, cross the borders illegally en masse to strip those fields bare, not thinking about the long-term sustainability of the region because, well, it's not theirs to begin with, but also because it may not exist next season. And they're hungry now, not months from now. Speaking of masses of hungry people, some experts are predicting that this series of changes could lead to the dissolution of certain borders altogether, and could even lead to the total breakdown of government-managed civilization. Many of these changes will be felt almost immediately, and most intensely, in some of the most heavily populated regions of the world today. And as Aramar Revy, the director of the Indian Institute for Human Resettlement, said in that New York Times article, Quote, you can set up a wall to try to contain 10,000 and 20,000 and 1 million people, but not 10 million, end quote. The report itself says that the shift of 1.5 degrees Celsius will dramatically increase coastal flooding by the year 2040. And if a 2 degrees Celsius change occurs, we will see a, quote, disproportionately rapid evacuation, end quote, of people from the tropics. The flood of humanity from the southern hemisphere and equatorial states to those in the northern hemisphere could be unlike anything that we have ever seen before. Tens of millions of displaced people moving northward every year.
Some of these changes are dramatic, in the sense that they manifest as typhoons and hurricanes and coastal flooding, leading to events like we saw in Houston, here in the United States last year, and those we've seen in India throughout 2018, which alone have displaced more people than any other disaster this year. But others are less dramatic-seeming, but actually arguably more important structurally, like the death of all coral reef worldwide. That will almost certainly occur at the two-degree mark, or the increase of red tides, which are toxic algae growths that kill most aquatic life underneath the surface of the ocean that they cover because they keep sunlight from reaching that other life and their food sources. It's just a lot, a lot of changes, and many of them seemingly disconnected, explainable by other factors if you're willing to make some generous leaps of logic, but all of them almost certainly tie back to the larger issue of climate change, and more specifically, human-amplified climate change that has the world shifting, climate-wise, far faster than it usually does, than it would be if we were not here churning all of those gases into the atmosphere. As for that second point, the one about hope, this report does offer us a way out, in a way, but it does not sugarcoat the situation. Changing course at this point would require a wholesale rethinking of the way that we operate worldwide. And that's not hyperbole. Our current system, which is broadly organized around generating massive quantities of energy to power our sophisticated, resource-driven, tech-enabled societies, would need to come up with new ways to generate energy, and would need to almost certainly either produce far fewer things overall, or come up with better ways to produce things that involve less waste and energy consumption. What that means, more specifically, is that we would have to reduce greenhouse gas pollution by 45% from our 2010 levels by the year 2030, and we would need to get to that number to zero to reduce our production of greenhouse gases by 100% by the year 2050. And that unto itself is a big ask. Not because, I think, many people are particularly fond of things like coal power plants, and the carbon dioxide plumes that are emitted from their cars, but rather because, first, the world currently relies on these things. We are making great strides overall in developing new, renewable, non-polluting ways of generating energy, but we are nowhere near replacing the traditional polluting kind, one for one, with these newer sources. And second, because the companies and other entities, like government-controlled pseudo-companies that produce energy of this kind, they are insanely powerful. They control not just vast sums of money, which is a suitable stand-in for power in some circumstances, but they also control many aspects of politics and government worldwide through methods legal and less legal, through direct lines with politicians and political bodies, as well as through unspoken influence with coal miners, with petroleum industry employees, and so on. As I record this, it's the year 2018. The year 2040 is just 22 years away, well within the lifetime of the majority of people on the planet. 2050 is also within reach for most of us, statistically. We would have to decrease almost by half the amount of greenhouse gas pollution from 2010 levels within about a decade, 12 years of today. There are few options on the table here when it comes to solving this problem. Doubling down on our efforts to create renewable energy is one approach, and it's absolutely vital if such decreases in emissions are to happen. 
but increasing overall energy efficiency and decreasing energy use is also vital. This is something we've actually gotten a bit better at. Old predictive models about energy consumption in the year 2018 ended up being wrong, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, where tech and science benefits are wider spread than south of the equator in general. And in a lot of these Northern Hemisphere countries, innovations in energy efficiency have been pretty solid and consistent over the years. I find that electric light is a great stand-in for other technologies here because it's fairly representative of what's been happening in the world of technology overall, but it's also ubiquitous. Light is so common that it blends into the background. And some lights are kept on pretty much all night, every night, and in some cases all day too. And modern LED lights, which we've been able to scale up to the same level and quality, if not better, as traditional incandescent lights, use up to 80% less energy than their ancestor technologies. We have seen similar energy use reductions in our refrigerators, our TVs and other gadgets, our appliances, our communication devices. Some of these evolutions have been practical in the consumer sense because our battery technologies have not evolved as quickly as our other technologies, requiring new gadgets to sip at energy rather than guzzling it. Others have been driven by regulatory standards around the world. A lot of the evolution that we have seen in the world of cars and fridges has happened as a consequence of these government-mandated standards. It's possible that increased standards, more regulation, and the existing steady march towards smaller and more efficient gadgets could get us part of the way to where we need to be with our emissions goals. But it's unlikely that the current pace would get us to where we need to be without some currently unknown wonder innovation helping out. Some new way to recharge gadgets using kinetic energy or some new type of insulating material that is cheap and abundant, which allows us to dramatically rein in our air conditioning and heating costs, which remain some of the biggest drains on our energy grids worldwide, and which are poised to increase even further in the coming years as average temperatures sprawl to encompass higher and lower extremes. It's also possible that we will come up with some shiny new savior technology that allows us to recapture some of the greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere. This is actually what the companies emitting most of these gases keep pointing at as their preferred solution, because it would mean, they say, that things could keep going as normal. They shouldn't have to change anything dramatic about the way that they operate, and they will totally come up with something that corrects all past errors alleviates all of their sins. All will be forgiven and the atmosphere will be squeaky clean in no time. The report actually says that investing in this realm of inquiry is a very good idea because some kind of reclamation technology will almost certainly be necessary if we're going to reach these goals in time to avoid some of the worst case consequences of our actions. That'll mean figuring out how to suck some of those gases out of the air and either burying them underground or under the ocean, or maybe turning them into bricks or some other type of material like that. But the report also warns that relying on this solution entirely is unlikely to bear any real fruit, as, first of all, the technologies are currently all speculative, they don't exist, and even the promising ones that could maybe exist someday, we don't know if they'll work on scale. And second of all, these technologies will be incredibly expensive to implement. And although the report did not mention this, I will. 
How likely do we think it is that these companies will actually go out of their way to spend trillions of dollars to fix this problem that they've played a huge role in creating and that they've known about and ignored for this long? Many of these same companies did the initial research that showed climate change was a real issue and was happening and would probably lead to exactly these sorts of consequences, and they ignored all of that data. And they concealed it. They actively hid it from the government and the world decades before anyone else knew what was going on. It is in their best interest, according to the logic of corporations, to stave off action in this space as long as they possibly can so that they can keep moving at their current pace, to reap as many rewards for shareholders as possible, and then duck out, taking what they can, closing up shop, cashing out their chips, before they are required to pay for anything. Truthfully, that may prove not to be the case, and I hope that's just me being a little bit cynical here. I'm sure a lot of the people involved in these industries are good folks doing what seems rational to them, to help them and their families survive. But I also recognize that good people can do bad things because of incentives that exist. And I recognize that corporations are amazing tools if you are hoping to do bad stuff and justify away the consequences as not being your fault. Everything is committee-based, and everyone is just a cog in that larger machine. It allows people to blame the machine rather than their contribution to it. It would surprise me not at all to see these structures used in this way, in this circumstance, as the floodwaters rise and the world falls apart, to allow folks to justify the fortunes that they made as they actively contributed to these problems and actively prevented anyone else from implementing solutions that would have reduced or stopped them. They'll say, it wasn't me, it was just the consequences of my work, it was just a paycheck. Anyone else would have done the same, that kind of thing. The last point that I will make on that topic is that doing something about this, changing our fortune in some way, will almost certainly require that every person on the planet sacrifices something. It may be a temporary sacrifice. It may be that the sacrifice is political instead of being related to your lifestyle. It may be that you are super wealthy and you have to give up some of your assets or one of your money streams rather than having to change the way that you live. It may be sacrificing your political career in order to make an unpopular but necessary decision. It may mean less reliable consumer goods, less varied diets, or less predictable and stable infrastructure. Something I've thought about a lot as someone who travels a great deal, and someone who enjoys travel, someone who thinks travel is valuable and important, is that these changes could mean, for a time at least, less reliable access to other countries. Planes, after all, as they exist today, pollute a whole lot, and we do not have scaled-up technologies that would allow the aviation world to operate at its current level without producing that pollution. Would I be willing to give up those flights, which are relatively cheap and accessible and vital to my happiness in a lot of ways? Would I be willing to give those up in order to move toward this goal? Would you be willing to give up the beef in your diet, the takeout coffee that you enjoy each morning, the car that you can drive anywhere, anytime, for any reason? I would like to think, considering the consequences of inaction, that the answer would be yes, on all counts. But I do not think those sacrifices would be pleasant for anyone. Losing the ability to travel regularly would cut me deep. And I'm guessing for enthusiastic meat eaters and coffee guzzlers and car drivers, the same would apply if they were to lose their particular passions. 
because of reduced shipping channels, illegalized disposable packaging, and limited fuel availability. This sort of change does not mean reverting to living in caves and becoming hunter-gatherers, but it does mean pulling back from the arguably extreme levels of consumption that we have adopted because of the arguably extreme point on the capitalism spectrum that we've reached. It's not unthinkable to imagine a version of our economic system in which corporations are environmentally and economically responsible rather than just making things and enriching their investors and owners. It's not unthinkable to imagine a world filled with abundant, renewable, non-polluting energy generation. We already know how this could be done, and we have ideas about how it could be done better. It's more a matter of bypassing existing interests that want to see such efforts hamstrung, and putting more of our economic might and scientific and technological know-how in the proper bins, making what will almost certainly happen eventually happen now, very soon, instead of 100 years from now. And it's not unthinkable to imagine a world in which we are less focused on accumulating more, acquiring more and more stuff, defining ourselves by our possessions and jobs, and in which we instead organize and define based on other things, other goals, based on exploration and discovery and community and the creation of things, but things that are not valued exclusively by the market and not produced in the millions, necessarily. That third major point that I mentioned, that what we've been telling ourselves all these years about climate change is not entirely true, refers to research mentioned in this report, but which was more thoroughly fleshed out in another recent report back in mid-2018 about how, essentially, just 100 companies around the world are responsible for approximately 71% of all greenhouse gas emissions. That's been the case since 1988 at least, and it remains the case today. The implication here is that although the efforts that individuals can take, like driving less, consuming less, using less overall energy, can be helpful when you spread the effects out to the scale of a population, when you look at the macro numbers, those efforts are actually kind of more symbolic than anything else. The most impact an individual can have at that scale is voting, essentially, because that could lead to regulations on these industries and, in turn, would have measurable consequences at that big picture level. Now, this is not a pleasant thought for those of us who have gone out of our way to try to live more sustainably and felt like our actions were connected to potential improvements in this space. And I don't want to diminish any of that, any of those actions. It's just that the consequences of our actions are likely less directly impactful and more adjacently impactful. Deciding to drive less, for instance, to ride your bike to work three out of five days a week, may in turn cause you to perceive yourself as someone who is not just concerned about climate change, but willing to do things about it. As a consequence, you will be more likely to act in accordance with that self-perception and vote, and spend, and otherwise influence big companies and governments accordingly. It's also important to remember that such acts have more localized, small-scale benefits that may not be reflected in the global figures. Driving half as much as you normally would may not move the needle on the inexorable shift in climate, but it could help lower levels of pollution in your city. It could contribute to a sense of tighter-knit community in your area, while also helping you feel healthier due to all that pedaling. 
The takeaway from this point, in my mind, is less about us individual human beings being impotent to do anything meaningful about the issue, but rather that we may want to be more intentional as to what it is we are doing and our perceptions of our actions. If you change your commuting habits and then fail to vote for whatever reason, you could actually be a net contributor to the problem of climate change, despite your best efforts and despite those other localized benefits of your actions. Likewise, and this is somewhat remarkable to me, if you vote for policies and for politicians who support policies that would move the needle on these issues, you may actually be contributing more in some ways, than people who do a whole lot more visible work on the personal level to address these issues. Of course, probably most valuable, because it has positive repercussions globally and locally, and because it increases the visibility of these issues overall, and makes them feel more friendly and attainable, rather than framing them as sacrifices made by fringy hippies, are folks who make such changes in their behaviors and do what they can to nudge things on the larger global scale. By voting, by supporting companies and organizations that do the same, and by pulling resources and support from those companies and other entities that do the opposite. Like with anything that requires mass movement, though, it's important to understand where the most beneficial outcomes come from, and this new perspective may help orient efforts in the proper direction, moving forward, as difficult a pill to swallow as it might be for some of us at first. I wanted, as much as possible at least, to avoid making this discussion an emotional one, telling heart-rending stories of the upset, the hardships, the consequences for not just our children's generation and all that come after, but also for our own generations, those of us alive today. The outcomes that we are subjecting ourselves to, all because of the toxic incentives that partially power our current way of doing things. And I wanted to do that not because there's a shortage of content for it and examples that we can look at even today that we can point at and say, see that horrible thing that happened, imagine that, but ten times worse, and happening every single year or many times a year and around the world. Imagine all the horrors we already know and increase them in scale and scope to points beyond what we're prepared for and what we've built for, beyond the emergency contingency plans that we have in place. And then imagine the ripple effect, the catastrophe cascades that could emerge when a drought is followed by a flood, is followed by a coastline forever lost to the ocean, is followed by a mass migration event of tens of millions of people, is followed by a devastatingly hard winter, lower than average crop yields, stressed or broken medical supply lines, and a flurry of overseas and local conflicts driven by a lack of access to necessary life-giving resources. That's what we're dealing with here, and that's what the world may look like In about 20 years, a series of such cascade events, one after another, and even worse, if we can't get things under control within the next 10 years, there's a good chance all of that will happen regardless. The variables will all be set in place and nothing we do from that point forward will stop the inevitable deluge of devastation. We can always reduce the level of the consequences. So it's worth continuing to work on this stuff regardless, even though change is inevitable at this point of some kind. But a lot of those worst-case scenarios will be locked in if we do not make significant changes in the next decade. So I will mention all of that very briefly here at the end of this episode, but I wanted to primarily focus on the facts, the things that we currently know, beyond any reasonable shadow of a doubt. And importantly, there is still doubt 
about climate change, but most of the doubt, frighteningly, is coming from scientists who say that this report was actually watered down to make it more friendly and politically palatable, and that the reality will almost certainly be much worse, and the time that we have to prevent it is actually possibly even less than the decade that we've been offered. Any doubt in the opposite direction at this point, that climate change is not something that's happening, that humans are not influencing it in any way, or shockingly, and this is a relatively new one, that the changes that will happen will not be so bad, won't be a big deal. If you trace those claims back to their source, you will almost always find fossil fuel companies and organizations and politicians who have been taking big checks from those organizations. They are the ones that are spreading those falsehoods. The only doubt in that direction, in other words, are coming from severely biased entities that benefit from the world dragging its heels on this issue and not recalibrating towards something more sustainable as soon as humanly possible. We are not helpless in this, and we will almost certainly survive as a species regardless of what happens next. We are rugged and we are adaptive, but what we are deciding today, at this very moment, is the shape that the future will take, what condition humanity will be in, what our quality of life will be like, and how capable our planet will be of supporting us and of supporting all of the other life that has evolved alongside us. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called All Our Wrong Todays by Elan Mastai. This is an unusual take on time travel and alternate dimensions. The main character is a very flawed individual who is also fairly hilarious because of those flaws. And he, by happenstance, ends up going into the past and accidentally making some changes, as people tend to do when they go into the past. And the consequences of those changes basically land him in the world that we live in. The world that exists today that you and I live in is created as a consequence of some changes that he makes, because this main character actually comes from a much more pleasant, in a lot of ways, world. The world of the future that we imagined way back in the day, back in the early and mid-portions of the 20th century, all the things that we imagined came true, and the protagonist of this book accidentally did some stuff and created our world instead. So this book is him narrating the story of how that happened, his challenges in navigating this world that he's ended up in, and what he tries to do as a consequence of finding himself in this world that in a lot of ways is far worse than the world that he comes from, but in some ways is actually much better. If that sounds interesting to you, I recommend picking up a copy of All Our Wrong Todays by Elan Mastai. You can find out more about my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find out more about the tour that I'm currently on at becomingtour.com. And feel free to reach out and say hello on social media. I am at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and such. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.